good question for us to consider. Why were you born so beautiful? Why were you born at all? Does anyone know the answer to that question? That's, yeah, a few mumblings out there, but I think you've got it. Because you had no say in it, no say in it at all. Hopefully the relevance of that will become clear. Because today we continue a series of sermons, a doctrinal sermon series, a sermon series looking at doctrines of applied redemption. And today we'll be looking at one idea called election. This idea is about salvation. We might say that election is the idea that God will save everyone he wants to save. God will save everyone he wants to save so that at the end of salvation history, when God's work of saving humanity and the universe is totally complete, God will have with him as his saved people every single one of the persons he wanted to be there with him. So let's, firstly, let's see what the Bible has to say about election. The New Testament often talks about God's people being chosen, elect, appointed, ordained, predestined. And this language actually is all over the place. In the Gospels, Jesus talks routinely about his disciples as being those people whom God has chosen rather than those people who have chosen God. No, his disciples aren't people who have chosen God. No, no, they're the people whom God has chosen. And that language is everywhere. For example, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the signs of the inbreaking of the coming age, Mark 13, he says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So too in the book of Acts, the author Luke observes things like this. When when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Antioch, Luke writes, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Appointed by whom? Appointed for eternal life by whom? Well, by God. How does Luke know that they were appointed for eternal life? They believed. Believing the gospel is evidence that someone has been appointed for eternal life. So then Paul says to the Thessalonians... For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The fact that they believed, confessed, were filled with the Holy Spirit is all the evidence Paul needs to know that these people were chosen by God. Not not that they were choosing God, but rather that God had chosen them. When were they chosen by God? I mean, that's a good question. When? Well, Ephesians 
chapter 1. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 2 Timothy chapter 1. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the beginning of time. So also Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, whom have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And in the book of Revelation, God-saved people are referred to as those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, Revelation 17, Revelation 20. The Bible verses I'm quoting are only a sample. This survey is by no means exhaustive. Election language is everywhere. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Paul wants us to know that the idea of election, though, it's, it's not something new to the New Testament. No, in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about how election is everywhere also in the Old Testament. Of all of Abraham's offspring, God chose Isaac in particular. And especially, he didn't choose Ishmael. Of Abraham's son Isaac, God chose his son Jacob, but not Esau. Quote, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, unquote, Romans 9, uh, 11. God has a purpose in election. And this isn't, one of, this isn't some interpretive gloss by Paul. Election is most certainly all through the Old Testament. Moses himself writes about the election of the nation of Israel as God's covenant people in the book of Deuteronomy and about how the, the little nation of Israel, the slave nation of Hebrews, wasn't chosen of anything she had done as though she had something to be proud of, as though in some ways, you know, she was worthy of salvation. But no, no, quite the opposite. Rather, this was a universal and public demonstration of the mercy of God. We might ask ourselves, does the doctrine of election have a flip side. Does the doctrine of election also mean that God decides not to save others, just as he has decided to save some? Well, Scripture is perhaps not quite so strident, but the answer to this confronting question would appear actually to be a decided yes. 
the idea is sometimes called uh, reprobation, uh, the flip side of election. Reprobation, God's sovereign decision before creation to pass over some for salvation and indeed to punish them everlastingly for their sins as a manifestation of his glory and justice. Matthew 11, Jesus declared, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus praises God for what we'd call reprobation as well as for election. God's sovereign decision to actively hide and actively reveal, to exclude as whether to include, leads Jesus into prayer and praise. Peter, in his first epistle, speaks about those who reject the gospel message, stumbling over the stumbling block laid for them by God, Jesus, a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. A fall for which they were destined. 1 Peter 2.8 But Paul is the one who not only references the phenomenon, but also explains it. Having just outlined election in Romans chapter 9, he then turns to the flip side of that idea, what we might call reprobation. Romans 9, 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human effort or desire, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Unquote. Paul anticipates the myriad of objections that human beings will come up with in the face of such appalling truths. Election and reprobation both. Uh, um, verse 19, one of you will say to me, why then does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And indeed, this is the scandal underpinning the many, many objections that people have to the doctrines of election and reprobation. All of those objections coming down in one form or another, in essence, to the seemingly irresistible conclusion that if these doctrines are true, human beings actually don't have a choice. There is no such thing as free will. Our decisions are illusionary. And more than that, if this is true, God's right to judge us just evaporates. For who can be judged for their decisions by the judge who controls their decisions? Well, Scripture does three things in the face of these concerns. Firstly, Scripture fiercely defends the idea that we are responsible for every decision we make, every word we say, and that we will most certainly, every single one of us, stand in front of the throne 
for judgment. We will each give an account of ourselves. All of us. We are responsible. Scripture, therefore, does not explain how it is true that God's sovereign will undergirds everything, whilst at the same time, humans are indeed fully responsible for all of their decisions before God. It doesn't explain how both are true. It just teaches that both are true. I don't think anyone can claim to understand how both those ideas can be true at the same time. I don't understand how they can both be true at the same time. It's not a contradiction. It's not a paradox. It is something called an antinomy. Uh, two statements, both true, without us being able to comprehend how both can be true at the same time. Uh, last week, I explained that the word doctrine simply means teaching. Doctrine means that we'll be looking at ideas that help us to understand what the Bible has to say. Doctrine, a lot like uh, science, my, my, my first area of, of work, doctrine is systematic thinking. It's mapping out that which we, which we can be certain of. But at the edge of every single map, there is mystery. And that has always been the case, and it will always be the case. Doctrine, in other words, is a can of worms. So then, returning to subject, Scripture affirms both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity and says to us, in effect, deal with it. Secondly, Scripture defends God's right to do with us whatever he likes because he made us. Creator's authority over his creation. Rights of authorship. After all, it is to the glory of God that his justice is manifest both in punishment as well as in mercy. This is Paul's answer in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who of you, a human being, sorry, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And Paul is exactly right, as confronting and as confounding as, it, as that is. God has the right to do anything he likes with us. As God said to Moses out of the burning bush, who gives human beings their mouths? Who is it who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives human beings the ability to see? And who is it who makes them blind? Is it not me, the Lord? 
happened again as he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What he does with us is his business for we are his. If we find ourselves thinking, surely surely I have some rights, then we have completely misunderstood. Thirdly, Scripture teaches us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33.11, and indeed suffers immensely in the process of the destruction of evil beyond our comprehension. His decision to create the universe was a decision to suffer. And he knew it. He knew it, that he himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he himself, he knew before he did anything that he would have to face the horror of the cross before anything was made. The lamb who was slain before the creation of the universe. Someone uh, might be thinking, um, I'm struggling to deal with this. I'm struggling to deal with what I'm hearing. I'm struggling to deal with what I'm learning here this morning about God and the Bible. Perhaps we should carefully consider the following. The fundamental temptation, the temptation that underpins uh, all other temptations, the fundamental temptation is to believe that God is evil. And that is also our deepest, darkest fear, that God is evil, that he cannot be trusted, and that we therefore have to take matters into our own hands if we're going to survive and prosper and ensure our own best outcomes. That is, for each and every one of us, our darkest fear and the bottom of all temptation. The temptation in the garden, the temptation that Eve experienced and was deceived by, was the temptation to believe that God cannot be trusted, that he's hidden things and will continue to do so, and that therefore she had to take matters into her own hands. What was it that Eve and the serpent were doing on that day? What were they doing in the garden? Well, from a certain perspective, actually, what they were doing is what we might call theology. They were talking about God as though he was not there. Theology can be a very messy thing because theology creates problems we cannot solve and questions we cannot answer. We find that confronting because we think theology ought to be about solving problems, making sense of what the Bible has to say. But theology is not about problem-solving. The purpose of theology is not problem-solving, but prayer. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden, pray. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his garden, pray. Without prayer, theology creates divisions and problems and church splits. But the purpose of theology as we've seen from Jesus already this morning, is prayer and praise. Um, At this time, uh, I mean, yeah, at this time there's a great theological battle taking place. In my life as a Christian, I've witnessed lots 
of theological battles, often over obscure, indeed esoteric, aspects of doctrine and theology. But people get very upset about this schism or that schism or that idea for various reasons. And at the moment, there is a fight over the word inclusive. In the Anglican Church, in many sections, we are bending over backwards to affirm that our God is a God who includes and does not exclude. And that the Christian message is one of love and the inclusion of all God's creatures. Indeed, in the Anglican Church, in many quarters, she is beside herself in a desire to be seen, quote-unquote, as radically inclusive, as though that is the highest of all values, and if it can be shown to be this, that, or the other thing can be shown to be radically inclusive, then every other doctrine has to bow to it. And indeed, in many quarters, it is held that we need to be radically inclusive as a matter of survival as we face, it is felt in many quarters, social and political extinction. And if God is radically inclusive in that way, then so must we also, for indeed the whole point of humanity, this is true, is to faithfully represent God. But today, we can now see that when we say things like, our God is a God who includes and does not exclude, and the Christian message is one of love and inclusion to all God's creatures, we can now see that we are saying things that are not actually true. Unless we understand that God excludes, we will never understand the miracle that he includes anyone at all. And so that forces us to focus, doesn't it? If the Bible insists on the ideas of election and reprobation as exceedingly difficult and confronting as they are, then why? Well, the doctrines of election and reprobation actually help us to understand. Their purpose in Scripture is to help us to understand the magnitude of the mercy of God. It's about the mercy of God. Um, one of my old bosses, uh, when I worked in science, he had this kind of um, proverb, this mantra, this thing he lived by and tried to pass on to all of uh, his underlings, of which I was one. And his key to success was this phrase, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I'm not sure if you've heard that. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. And the proverb is true. It is easier to get forgiveness than permission humanly speaking. But that is simply because within any human family, society, or system, we can always make some claim on grace, some case for forgiveness. So then, in the lab, you use the electron microscope when really you weren't supposed to. Hey, what are they going to do? So you push the boundaries a bit. Yeah, you pay your dues, it's give and take. Yeah, worth having around. On balance, mostly. If you get into trouble, you can usually make the case as to why it's in everybody's best interest to forgive and forget and move on. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. That's true, humanly speaking, but it is not true with God. 
this is where we see the mercy of God in contrast. In our sin, we deceive ourselves, giving ourselves over to the lie that God is evil and that self-rule is salvation. Sinners don't want to be saved. They might want to be saved from suffering or the consequences of their choices, but sin makes us utterly incapable of acknowledging the truth that it was evil in the first place to reject the authority of God, that actually we are evil, not him. And we are evil when we try living whilst ignoring him and breaking his rules. This is his universe. And whilst we were still lost in that thinking, Jesus died for us, taking the punishment our sin deserved on the cross. And when we see what he has done and respond with faith and thanksgiving, surrendering our lives to him, giving him back the authority. This is God's spirit at work in our hearts. By ourselves, we could do nothing. The doctrine of election then shows us that the mercy of God is pure mercy. We had no case to argue We had no hold on grace. Nothing that we could offer or negotiate with. We didn't even have the wit or insight to try to negotiate. He has worked out our salvation for us from beginning to end before the beginning of time. And insofar as the mercy of God is pure, Mercy, pure mercy, it shows us who God is. That he is merciful in a way that we can continue to depend on. We are on safe ground as long as we continue to depend upon the mercy of God. Here's what Paul has to say about this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We, we may not have rights, but we have values. Indeed, we are of incalculable value to the one who made us. Let let us pray. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too difficult for me to understand. Rather... 
I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Why was I born so beautiful? Why was I born at all? Because I had no say in it, no say in it at all. Father, I thank you and praise you for making me, for loving me, for saving me through and for Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you that you are merciful and that I can always trust you to be merciful. You who did not spare your own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also, along with him, graciously and mercifully give us all things? We thank you, Father, and praise you. In the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen.